The Book Thingo podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and Valentines. Rudy Bremer and Gabby join us for episode 52, recorded in Sydney. Book Thingo would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Australia's Indigenous people to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thingo podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo podcast. Welcome back to the Book Thingo podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. For the past few weeks, we've been asking you to send us recordings of a favourite scene from your favourite romance novel. And oh my God, did you deliver. We've been swooning over here at Bookthingo and we thought it's Valentine's Day, so why not share the love? This episode, the Bookthingo podcast presents you and some of your faves. You can find information on the titles and authors we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 52. So over the past two months, we've been asking people to send us recordings of scenes from their favourite romance novels or just scenes from books that they're currently reading and loving. And we actually got some, which is kind of exciting. More than some. More than we thought. I'm actually impressed. Yes. So thank you. That was very generous. And some people sent in two readings, which was amazing above and beyond Mm -hmm. and so basically what we were thinking is that because it was so lovely to be able to share your love of books with you we wanted to share them with kind of everybody and we're gonna start with Kat who who shall we start with we are gonna start with Chachik who uh, has been featured in one of our previous episodes um, I think late last year she is reading from Pretty Face by Lucy Parker Caught up in conflicting emotions, he shoved open the library door with enough force that it banged against the frame and scared the living shit out of Lily Lamprey, who instinctively retaliated by chucking a book at his head. He didn't duck in time and swore when it caught him full in the chin and thudded to the ground. The noises echoed in the silent house, carried along beautifully by centuries-old stone acoustics, and they both froze. A few tense seconds ticked by, but no other doors opened within hearing range. Look exhaled, then bent to pick up the book and glance at the spine. Jane Austen. He inwardly groaned. In his experience, women didn't get up in the middle of the night and start reading Pride and Prejudice unless they were in a serious emotional funk. He was in a shitty enough mood himself that he had no patience for patting a histrionic actor in the head. He also wasn't thrilled to encounter Lily at this particular moment. She jarred with his recent thoughts. He looked at her properly. She was curled up in a huge window seat, cushions propped behind her back. She wore pajama bottoms and an enormous fuzzy pink jumper that made her look like a Muppet. Her silvery blonde hair was spiking out in all directions, which he assumed was from being pressed against a pillow and not because she reacted like a pufferfish when startled. Holy shit! She lowered the hand she'd pressed against her chest. I was this close to needing mouth-to-mouth. It was another of those painful moments when unfortunate words seemed to crystallize in the air around him. Look naturally glanced at her lips. 
Lily turned bright red and clashed with her jumper. Although, she added, grabbing hold of her nose for moral support, it would be a little difficult to administer when I keep sticking my foot in there. She pushed a mess of hair back behind her ear. Sorry about smacking you in the face with a book. It's my knee-jerk reaction when something scares the bejesus out of me. I throw things. Spiders enter my flat at their own peril. Let's hope no one opens the door when you're ironing or bricklaying. His chin was still throbbing. He had no compunction about the sarcasm. She made a humming noise. Mm, opens the door, tries to wrench one of one of its hinges like the Incredible Hulk. Potato, potato. Amelia would be disappointed to learn that his death stare wasn't invaluable. Lily smiled blandly in return. He tossed back Mr. Darcy and company, who packed a solid punch for their age, and she got the book neatly and laid it on her lap. Chachik! Amazing. <laughs> I was just Googling the author. I was like, Lucy Parker. Well, you know, I've heard a lot of good things about her. I just have not had a chance to try one of her books. Did Chachik say that that was one of her favorites? I remember her mentioning Lucy Parker when she was on an episode last yeah. year with you. I think Lucy Parker is one of her sort of autobi authors. Um, I feel like this is going to be a really good way of getting Rex because, as you know, yeah. I don't buy things without people <laughs> being like, you have to read this. Yeah. So I think this is going to be just people creating lists for me again. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah, having done a little bit of editing on each of these... Your your budget's going to be blown. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> what do you think of the insertion of Jane Austen, works of Jane Austen into romance mm. novels? Because that's quite a thing, I feel. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, I don't know. It's almost like a... Um, it's like, like a nod joke. to fans. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Is it a bit, is it a bit too much? Do you think it's... It's not just that she likes romance. It's that she likes good romance. Yeah. And, uh, I do occasionally question the flagging of that. But I think maybe we're just overthinking it because if she had identified a different romance book, like what other yeah, well, romance what book I'm or saying. author you could you put in a contemporary novel? Yeah, because it would date it. You couldn't. Yeah. What's good for me isn't going to be good for you, which is why I think you need to find someone who recommends you books that likes the same prose as you. Yeah. Or absolutely hates the things that you love, yeah. so you just go opposite all the time. Yeah. This is a clunky way to go into this because <laughs> Vasiliki has a very interesting interpretation mm. of what makes a, a beautiful, amazing romance <laughs> novel and scene. This is <laughs> she. I really like it. She always I love it. thinks I love out of this. the box when She's, it comes to yeah. books. Oh, Vasiliki gave us a reading, and this is it. I have chosen to read. Parts out of Lillian Peake's The Library Tree. It's a male librarian called Richard Hinden, and he is forced by the local councillor to hire the councillor's niece. And he's this librarian really, really hates nepotism, and so he hates Carolyn with the long blonde plaits because she's also not a librarian. And how dare she? <laughs> So this is Mr. Hinden, Richard Hinden, speaking to Caroline. He's, he's really peeved. He's not wanted to hire her. So you thought, like a lot of other people, that librarianship consisted exclusively of standing at the counter, stamping books and issuing tickets. Caroline laughed and nodded, ashamed of her admission. She 
us brightening a little. How does one become a cataloger, Mr. Coates? A cataloger? He laughed. It's early days to be thinking in those specialized terms. Cataloging is not something that can be tackled by a newcomer. But after attending library school, that's something you will probably be doing after about a year. Once you've made up your mind you would like to make librarianship your career, you'll have qualified and then you would be able to tackle cataloging. He brushed back his hair and Carolyn noticed how grey it was. But we've all had to start at the bottom, you know, at floor level, as it were, if not by unpacking parcels, then by doing other kinds of routine duties even chief librarians and their deputies have had to do. That's just so hot. (laughs) She wants to be a (laughs) cataloger. This fool, like, he's so angry at her, so angry. I should like to explain, Mr. Hinden, so this is Caroline talking, that I left teacher training halfway through because I realised I didn't possess the right qualities to make a teacher. I also knew I wouldn't like it as a career. So you think you would like librarianship better? He gave the word an an insulting emphasis. Well, she answered, a hint of uncertainty slowing her speech. I've always liked books. So you think... A liking for books is the sole criterion for which you judge an aptitude for library career. Can I just say I fell in love with him there because seriously, if someone says to me, I like books and I thought I'd be reading. So that's why I I came and applied for a library job and you just go, no, no, you've got to be able to like searching for books, not liking the books. (laughs) He's like the hottest librarian ever right <laughs> can I just and she goes on to talk about all oh, the books of her childhood and you're like ah oh, you're losing me <laughs> so he's teaching her how to Dewey you know who Dewey was Miss Lyle <laughs> he was an American Melville Dewey who in 1873 invented what is known as the Dewey decimal system like this goes hot so he goes on and he's talking about, ah, so they've got a book about trains in Dorset. <laughs> in which, so do you classify it as 621.13 or do you classify it as 385.3 or is it rail engineering? That would make it yet another number. You see what I mean when I say that classification can be difficult and tricky business and that it's best left to the experts? That was the moment that these two connect. And then he touches her long blonde hair. It was just so hot. It was actually amazing, but I feel like I learned something as well. Like I was having a great time and I was learning. But, you know, one of the things I love about old school romance is that you learn things. Well, so for context, something that Vasiliki mentioned when she was doing the recording was that that book was part of a series that was released by the publisher that was like 
specialty about careers. And so the reason that it is so incredibly so detailed oh my God, so about what exactly it means to be a librarian and a cataloger and all of these things is because that's kind of what they were doing. Like they were getting specific about particular careers. They were like, like showcasing. Kind of cool. I don't know if publishers would do that nowadays. I feel like they do collections like um, Aussie Heroes. Yeah, it's more Outback about legends. like billionaires. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, while we're talking about the publisher of The Library Tree by Lillian Peake, we tried to get in touch with the authors and make sure that we actually had permission to share excerpts of their books on the podcast. This one, though, is I think it's around 20 years old and it's published by Mills and Boone. So, so I couldn't get any contact details <laughs> for the author. <laughs> so in the interest of due diligence, we got in touch with the, with the publisher and they gave permission to read the excerpt. So the permission to read the excerpt was granted by Harlequin Books SA. Thank you so much and for that. And special thanks because... to Kate who found us the right people in Harlequin connections to actually are, talk Yeah, to. connections are really important at times like this. I try not to do it, but for this one, I was like, I have no other way to figure out how to get this excerpt. And can you imagine if we didn't get permission for that one? That would have actually been so sad. Out. Are we allowed to talk about the ones that we don't have permission for? I don't know which ones we don't have permission. You to. know which one. If we don't get it in time. No, no, she means different. specifically her yeah. one that she wanted to do. Um, the one that I've already read. Yeah. All right. So after that amazing uh, reading by Vasiliki, we're actually going to go into one by DM. And she sent in an excerpt from a Sarah McLean book. And the book is a recent one, actually, called The Day of the Duchess. I have chosen to read a passage in The Day of the Duchess. This is not my favourite romance ever, but it is one of my favourites. And when I read this scene, oh, it slayed me. So I was spoilers galore. The room erupted in a chorus of pounding fists and hissing. Let the man speak, came a cry from somewhere below her. And a Mayweather spoke up. He's got a right to vote on his own marriage, doesn't he? He does, she said softly. Her sisters heard her. Sophie turned to look at her. You want him to vote? If he voted, it would be to keep her marriage intact. Yes. Shocked coursed through her, and she nodded, the movement barely there, so small that no one should have seen it. Of course, her sisters saw it, and they sat to hooting and shouting themselves, banging their hands on the observation railing and drawing Mal's attention to the upper level of Parliament. When he found her, he met her gaze without hesitation, and she saw everything there. Love, passion, conviction. He wanted her, and would do anything to have her. And in that moment, she realised she felt the same way. I don't think you're getting your divorce now, Sophie said, squeezing her hand. But it does seem like you might be getting a grand gesture, Cecily said happily. I told him we like a grand gesture. All right then, Haven, get on with it. The Lord Chancellor said with more than a thread of irritation in his tone. He seemed to have eschewed parliamentary formality. Haven moved to the centre of the floor, his gaze riveted to her, and somehow all Parliament fell away. As though it were the two of them somewhere private and perfect, the underwater ballroom at Highley, the stage of the sparrow in the early morning, somewhere in the world could not see them. He caught her breath, waiting for him to speak. I love you. A chorus of irritated hovums sounded around 
the room as peers from across Britain realised what they were in for, but Sarah found she did not care a bit. She stood clutching the rail of the observation gallery for support, wanting to be as close to him as possible for whatever was about to come. Especially when he pressed on. I have known I wanted to marry you since the moment I met you, when you gave me a dressing down for insulting women's motives in marriage. You were magnificent, he pointed. Mayweather was there. He would have thought so too, except he was in love with Helen already. Her sisters all offered little sighs of pleasure, so Sarah assumed Marcus did something lovely at that, but she was too busy watching her husband, who was moving toward her, as though she weren't ten feet in the air. Do you remember what I said to you that night? You said that love is a great fallacy. Several of the men assembled seemed to agree. Mal nodded. I did, and not ten minutes later, I had tumbled into it. Her heart pounded. She had too. She'd been planning to seek him out, this legendary eligible duke. And then she'd stumbled upon him, and he'd been perfect. And she'd almost been disappointed that he was the same man she thought to catch. Do you remember the first song you ever sang to me? Of course she did, and he knew it. She'd sung it that last night at the Sparrow. I do. Mal had reached the first of several rows of seats separating them, all populated by robed, wigged lords. Careful haven, one of them grumbled. He didn't seem to hear. She was born that day in the heart of a boy. I always thought it was about you. Then you found yourself with me. Oh my god, I'm tearing up. Okay. I always thought it was about you, that you found yourself in me. Tears pricked at her eyes, but as the years passed, I realised it was a fool's thought. Because what of him? What of the boy, born that day, in the heart of a girl? The words were thick with emotion, and Sarah's knuckled turned white with the force and used to clutch the railing. What of the boy who hadn't seen the sun until he'd seen her, the moon, the stars? He stilled, staring up at her. His gaze tracking every inch of her face as she did the same, wishing he were closer. He must have wished the same, because he moved in, climbing up onto the heavy benches below, caring neither for the venerable furnishing, nor the venerated aristocrats who had to lean out of the way or find themselves trampled by the Duke of Haven. He seemed to care only for getting closer to her. Here it comes, Cecily whispered. Okay, so I'm recording this in a Airbnb in Vienna, Austria. And I hope you enjoyed listening to me squeal and get really emotional over Sam McLean, who's like one of my favourite authors ever. Okay, thank you so much. Bye. That was so (laughs) fucking cute. I actually had chills. Like, I feel like if you want someone to read romance, that's romance. Like, that excerpt and her reaction oh my god so cute and just made it so much but also she was on holiday and she (laughs) said dedicated but like while we're recording she is still overseas oh it's actually amazing (laughs) i haven't read this book actually i think you've got a yeah infidelity is your um it's your nose thing that you had this conversation last time but um Seems like a very nice way to end things. Really so. nice. I think his redemption mm. is pretty killer. Is this the one that she said she had to? This is the one that yeah. you were telling us she had to write. Okay. Yeah, well, she had I'm to rewrite to the ending. It. So she had the this scene in particular, like she had the way that it sort of plays out, and then had to go back and change it. Once you read it, you kind of it becomes obvious why it changed and how it changed. But 
have no idea what you guys. I actually about. don't know either. No. <laughs> but also, um, she can tell me anyway. Later. Yeah. Also, the fact around. that she kind of says, "Yeah, I changed it," because yeah. you don't usually get that in literature. Usually, it's like, "No, this is my vision, and I'm not compromising it." And it's, you only really yeah. get it in like TV and movies where popular culture. Yeah, basically, it has to re mm. it has to meet the audience's expectation. When we define popular culture, one of the defining features is that it has to respond to what's happening in the world around it. That is the one of the defining features of pop culture. And when Judith McNaught rewrote the rape scene in Whitney, My Love. What other author in any other genre would say, or any other, sorry, non-genre would say, my readers weren't happy with this. I'm actually going to rewrite it because I need to make sure it's relevant. Well, yeah, to have the original author go back and change something that's so fundamental to the work that they've made. I, I can't think of anybody else, like of anywhere else that that would happen. Because mm. the reader's so important in genre. It's so, like, we have a voice as much as the author does. And it's our relationship with the author that makes romance, I think, really, really But also, unique. even in genre, how many other genres would this happen to? Mm. Would this happen in? Very few. Yeah, I don't read any anything other than romance, <laughs> so I can't speak. I can't speak right there. So our next excerpt is quite a short excerpt, and it's by Marion Weymouth, who is a fellow reader and I have known her for quite a while actually and when I think about how long I've known some of my reader friends I've been friends with some of these people more than I've been friends with people I went to high school with yeah so that's crazy which is kind of scary but also kind of feeling very sentimental uh so this extract is from Marrying the Captain by Carla Kelly it's one of those books that gives me comfort and pleases the heart it's one of those stories that I think is the best of Regency romance genre. Her breath was warm on his cheek. He thought of all the cold winds from the channel to the Bering Sea that had scoured his cheek and the hot winds of North Africa and the dog latitudes that burned him. He prided himself in knowing from the wind how to keep his ship aright and to sail close to the wind. How could he explain Nana's breath on his cheek giving him more heart than any breeze from any point of the compass. Powerful. So how interesting that she picked a scene from the hero's point of view. Because I feel like, I don't know that we got many scenes from the hero's point of view. Didn't we just, I'm wasn't Chashik? Chashik did. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> wow. Sorry, that was Attention not that long ago, actually. Zero <laughs> seconds. <laughs> so about half, we've had half from the hero's <laughs> Well, <laughs> but interesting discussion point. Do we? I'd because... ask Rudy to cut that bit, but she won't. She... And if I no, ask, okay, just no, ask, her, ask, ask a different question. I was thinking how interesting it is that Marion chose a, a very short excerpt because we didn't actually tell anybody, like, we, we gave no parameters mm -hmm. or directions, actually. <laughs> I'm so part of it was on purpose mm. so that people could choose whatever they yeah. wanted to choose. I didn't want to limit. To I do. think it's important to let it end naturally as well because all of these books were chosen for different reasons, all of these excerpts were chosen for different reasons. So you want them to have their weight and I think no one knows better than the reader. So even when I, I read mine, um it was kind of like, oh, where am I going to stop? And then all of a sudden it was like, yeah, that's the point. That makes sense. Mm. That was nice. 
I'm tangled in my head. Yeah, I'm just like, what have you done? Do I need do this to, for a living? I need to get up. I never have my hair out. Um, I need to get up and get my phone because I'm going to actually do a reading. The joy of being somebody who actually was in charge of getting all this stuff she ready was that I didn't do my own. I'm actually really <laughs> looking forward to what you've chosen. I can see it here. I haven't read any by this. I'm back. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Give me a second. Okay. Oh, I'm looking forward to hearing you read. <clears throat> when I was thinking about what I wanted to choose, yeah, about this time last year, I started reading Kit Rocha and I got really into the Sector 4 series. But yeah, so this is like the spin-off series. It's Gideon's Riders, who are from Sector 1, because there's nine sectors. It's a whole thing. In terms of the, the nine sectors, they kind of... One had more money. They also like had, like... And Hunger Games. Yes. So, I thought you were going to say, that's stupid. Really but, weird. Yeah, cool. But I'm having trouble wrapping my head around the choice to have nine districts. Like, why nine? <laughs> why not nine? I don't know. What, do you want ten? Like, is it split like a pizza, the districts, or are they split no. like a proper map? Like, just <laughs> random area. I'm just... <laughs> so, like, I, I get what you're asking, yes. but, like, it's kind of the different districts or sectors have different roles within the society of and the world that's built, and it's kind of a dystopian America. But, like, this is... Where this is set seems very much to be middle America. Are like, there any dystopias that are not set in bloody fucking America? Yeah. Like, you just don't read them. But like dystopia, dystopias Romance. aren't meant to be set in America. Like if you think about well, yeah, Games, like it's, it's the, all of the... But they speak American, so... Speak English. What is? They do speak like Americans. They speak English. There are other English speakers who do not speak like that. They speak like Americans. Maybe because they were American authors, though. Anyway, this book. Are there any people who speak English with not an American accent in the in dystopias? This? Yeah. No, no because it's set in middle America. <laughs> but you better just do the reading, Judy, yeah, because I don't even know where sake. this is going to go. Yeah, she's tired. She's tired. Okay. Quickly, quickly. Do we have to be silent for this one? I'm going to turn you off. No. <laughs> no, all right. Fuck you, Are we back? Yeah, you're yes. back. This is actually, it's the setup for the next book, which is not out yet, but it's the one that I am the most hanging out for. So Maricela is a princess in within the sector. She's one of three princesses and yeah. And this is from her perspective. The thud of a knife driving into wood caught her attention. Ivan was practicing his throws off in the corner of the courtyard, away from everyone else. He wore his usual severe expression, but that did nothing to diminish his appeal. If anything, it only made her want to clear his stormy frown with a smile, perhaps even a laugh, if she was lucky. Maricela moved without thinking, muttering an apology to Isabella as she snagged a second beer from the bucket. He glanced up at her approach. The final knife left his fingers without him looking, yet somehow still sank into the target near its painted centre. Ivan drove his fingers through his short blonde hair to smooth it down before turning to nod at her. 
Maricela. He was wearing a blue-grey shirt that made his eyes look ridiculously bright. But she was burning up in light colours and no sleeves, so he had to be sweltering. It's hot, she breathed, then immediately fought a wince. I brought you a beer. Thank you. He accepted the frosty bottle from her hand and held it to the strong column of his neck. Her throat went dry. She would have rolled her eyes if he'd been trying to make her think filthy thoughts, but somehow the fact that it didn't even occur to him, it just happened? She swallowed a whimper. Do you have a date yet? To the Midsummer Festival, I mean. One of his eyebrows rose marginally. A date? Someone to go with, she elaborated. You talk, laugh, have fun, go home together afterwards? With his brow still furrowed, he opened his beer and took a sip. I don't date, Maricela. There was a tiny chip of wood caught in the fold of his shirt near his broad shoulder. She reached out and brushed it free as an excuse to touch him. Could I persuade you to make an exception? Are you asking for an escort? Anyone else and she would have giggled at the absurdity of the situation. To hear her sister talk, Maricela only had to snap her fingers or wave her hand and potential lovers would come running. In reality, not so much. But somehow, she didn't want to laugh. In fact, part of her positively wanted to cry. So she smiled and nodded. Right, an escort. I couldn't think of the word. Would you be so kind? Of course. He took a step towards her, looming into her space so close she could smell the sharp pine scent of his aftershave. For a moment she thought he might have understood her intentions after all, but when he leaned down to her ear, his whisper was purely practical. With the heightened security risk, you should always have a rider or one of the royal guard with you. It's important. My hero. She meant it as a tease, the kind he had probably come to expect from her, but it came out sounding solemn. His blue, blue eyes were equally serious as he inclined his head, and it was more than agreement. It was almost a bow. My princess. Princess. He offered her his arm. She took it and let him lead her toward the refreshment table without argument. At the end of the day, there were worse things to be. And that's it. So he's her bodyguard, and I'm really looking forward to that book coming out. It'll be called Ivan because all of these books are named after the guy. I but was yeah. distracted by how well you read that. I like know, you just have such a fuck. <laughs> having a because, crisis. Yeah, like it sounds good. And I, obviously I love the trope of bodyguard and like protect. Like I love that. I'm into it. Well, one of the other reasons, aside from the fact that like I just am absolutely so excited for this book because, yeah, like there's kind of, there's been a, a small build up to it and I, I love the trope of princess and bodyguard but also she's she's latina so i'm i'm excited for a not white princess because oh, um, as yes. you were talking about with jody in the last episode like a lot of those royal her um, research into royal yeah, romance a lot of the time it's predominantly white royalty oh. <laughs> and so i kind of love that yeah kit roach ahead of the curve Perfect. How many princesses are there? So there's three. One, her books already happened. It's called Ashwin. And because Cora was kind of like adopted into the family, but like as an adult, she doesn't quite feel like a princess as a character, but also 
from a reader perspective, you kind of don't really see her as a princess type. Whereas Maricela and her sister have been raised to be royalty. And so they very much have this sense of duty and place within their society. It's kind of an interesting mix of tropes because, you know, princesses are traditionally to be rescued, to be, I don't know. Well, yeah. But but really when you think about it, they're actually in positions of power. Like if you put the princess next to the bodyguard, the princess is essentially the employer or the boss. Mm. And then the bodyguard is a nice way to have an alpha hero without him being able to be a superior power, yeah, to like the that. princess. Like I just made that up now, but I'm like it's kind of really amazed at the cleverness yeah. well, of the author to do that. That's kind of the dynamic that when Joey W. Hill writes about her submissive alphas, mm. like that's the dynamic she goes 100%, for. Which is why, like, Natural Law is what, yeah. the one that you're talking about. Wow, I remember a book. Um, the Vampire Queen Servant wrecked yeah, me. Yeah, because she's, she's done it a couple me. of times. Wrecked but you in a good way or a bad way? I couldn't read it because it yeah, was so, so intense. Uh, intense. Yes, yeah. yes. So I would say it's good but also I couldn't finish it. I think natural law is different because it's not one of her fantasies. And natural law is amazing because the submissive hero is an FBI agent. Cop, he's like cop. alpha no, he's on just, the... He's just a regular he's cop. He's just a cop. But she's his boss? No, she's... <laughs> Listen, Can I, make... I remembered the name of the you book. You did, you did, and I'm so proud. But actually, so I've got to say, we'd probably been friends for like a year or so and you insisted that I read Natural Law. Yes. You were like, there's no way that you can't. Like, you wore me down. What and was I... your reaction? Like, what was your first reaction to it? I loved it. I yeah. remember I, I really have a vivid memory of coming up to you being like, you were so right. This oh my is God, amazing. I'm never right. Yes. No, but it was an amazing book. And I think that I'm, you reading out that excerpt makes, I will be reading, I will be reading that series. It sounds really good. And what's kind of nice about like this series is, I mean, I would recommend reading both, but you don't have to. You can literally just pick it up from, you can just read Gideon's Riders. It'll all still make sense. A good thing. That's actually a hard skill for an author. Well, because it's almost, it's that thing of like, they're parallel stories and they do have crossovers, but like at the end of the day, they're separate their own, enough. Well, they're their own societies. There's um, still life after dystopia, in dystopia. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God. Sarah. Is this me? I think it is. Okay, cool. So the next one I'm actually really excited to hear because it's Jodie. Jodie, my queen. Jodie, the genius. And Jodie. Doctor. Doctor Jody. Jodie, the genius. And she is reading from a book by Stephanie London called The Rules According to Gracie. I'm going to read from the very beginning of the book. So thankfully there's not much scene setting involved, but this is the first in a series that are all revolve around a bar in Melbourne. And one of the things I really love about this series is how strongly rooted in place it is. Like you can read, she creates Melbourne so beautifully. And that's something I really want, particularly in Australian romance. I want that idea of setting that's really like, that feels real. And another thing I really liked about this is uh, I'm I'm kind of really over billionaires right now in the era of Trump. The hero in this one is just a guy that runs a bar and the heroine is a girl that comes into his bar all the time. And oh, I just really like it. I found it really, really charming. 
From his vantage point at the bar, Des Chapman could tell two things. One, they were going to run out of the seafood special, and two, the guy at Gracie Green's table wasn't getting lucky tonight. He chuckled as he looked over to the booth set intimately for two. He knew all of Gracie's tells. This date was not going well. Her hand repeatedly raked through her dark chocolate curls. She was frustrated. She kept chatting to the waiter. She was bored. And finally, she ordered a peach bellini with a cherry on the side. Her SOS. Des poured the fizzing Prosecco over peach nectar and dropped a cherry into a dish, then placed both items on the bar where Gracie would be joining him shortly. Despite the countless dates she had paraded through first, his restaurant and bar, he'd been lusting after the woman for months on end. Not that she showed any kind of reciprocal interest, though, if he was being honest with himself, it was for the best. Gracie Green was any and every kind of wrong for him. She came from money. Old money. If that wasn't warning enough, she'd shed a little light on her family situation, and it didn't look good. Irritatingly perfect older sister who'd married into another old money family. Controlling mother who was more concerned with keeping up appearances than the well-being of her children. The whole thing screamed, back the hell away. He could have been persuaded to look past those factors for a chance to be with Gracie if it weren't for the fact that he'd done it all before. His ex was exactly the same. Same crazy family, same outdated views, same preference for status over love. Society girls were not in his repertoire anymore. Des stalked over to her table. He couldn't wallow in frustration any longer. He had a business to run and customers to keep happy. Fantasies about Gracie and her unobtainable body would have to wait until he was home alone. I told you, Gracie. He placed his palms on the table and leaned forward. You can't be bringing men around here while you're still married. So that one was, interestingly, seems to be flagging infidelity. Mm. How do you feel about it, Kat? <laughs> Look at your fucking face. <laughs> she just like, her entire body sinks. I've read Eloisa James's books that have had infide- infidelity. Mm. I just prefer not to have to encounter it if I don't Oh, I don't like that one. The Eloisa James one. There were a couple. There was the pirate the with, the, with the teardrop. Oh, yeah. No, I don't um, like him And either. then there was the one where they were proper married and yeah. billiards. Yeah. No. I, I can't remember how it ended. I don't know if I read No, what's his face? Who's married to Gemma? Yeah. Yeah. Gemma's book. I don't like it. That's your take on Jodie's reading. <laughs> Gemma's book. It's unrelated <laughs> to Jodie, who just read that so beautifully. Dr. Jodie. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Dr. Sorry, <laughs> so the next reading is by Anna, and she's reading from one of my favourite author's books, The Forbidden Rose by Joanna Bourne. Hi, I'm Anna Cookie, and I am so glad that Kat has challenged us to read from our favourite romance novels. It really made me think of why I read things again, why I treasure them. One of my favourite books is Joanna Bourne's The Forbidden Rose. In this novel, I constantly find beautiful little passages that catch my attention. I'm going to read from chapter 15. In this scene, uh, Marguerite de Florignac, who has been traveling under an assumed name with Guillaume Le Breton, a man who pretends to be a bookseller and smuggler, but she suspects it's much more, much more dangerous man. She is saying goodbye to him in her mind, setting him aside because she knows she cannot 
continue to be with him. She needs to go back home and uh, find her father before he is killed by the French Revolution. One cannot put the fruit back on the tree. One cannot unbreak the egg. She could not, not ever again, for all of eternity, unknow what she knew of his body. Someday, when she was old, she would take this knowledge out as if it were a letter she had treasured. By then, the pain would be thin and crackly, like old paper. That was beautiful. Right? I saw you get shivers. I did. I did. That was and also because her French pronunciation was stunning and mine is barbaric. It was absolutely stunning. There's no extract from any of her books that could possibly be not good. She writes like a fucking she, master. Like she doesn't write like any regular popular romance writer. Her prose is luscious. Yeah. That's definitely. what it is. There's a few authors that I would put in that category of writing luscious mm. kind of prose. And that's not to say that other authors who are sort of a little bit lighter aren't fantastic as yeah. well. It, it's a different style. Exactly. And there's something really lovely about being able to wallow in Joanna Bourne's writing. It's so vivid. I just remember reading that for the first time, The Forbidden Rose for the first time, and it being set in the French Revolution and being able to see it. I saw it and it was gritty and it was dirty and it was horrible and mean, but it was beautiful. It was so, it was such a bizarre feeling, but it was amazing. I always wonder if authors like her understand the impact of what they're doing to so many people. Like, do they know how brilliant they are when they finish these books? Because they're so brilliant. Like, I'm going to say I have a feeling that she does, which is why she takes her time publishing. She has that luxury. She knows that people are going to read her books and she, like you can tell her books are painstakingly detailed and beautiful and you can tell the effort that she puts in and she has pride in what she does. And I don't know. It just comes, it comes through. I think she totally does. I have one of her latest books still in reserve. Can't bear to read it because if I read it, it, it's going to be over and I won't have another book. It's really, I need to go back though because I get so desperate to read her and I don't have that control. It's been so long because she publishes so slowly. Well, slowly in terms of romance. I forget about the previous book and I have such a bad memory. I need to go back and I need to reread all of them. as we were discussing, the publishing order is not the chronological order. And in Australia... They tried to publish this series in chronological order, which is the most confusing thing for a reader because you go to Goodreads and all the series numbers are completely different. Mm. So I don't know what the thinking was behind that. Yeah, it's really bizarre. When you do rereads of Joanna Bourne, do you try and read chronologically or do you read by publishing date? I'm going to read chronologically just because I think you can read by release and obviously you lose nothing by that, but reading Spymaster's Lady first just is going to help me keep track of all my characters. And because the characters, like I'm so bad with it, I need something. I need that timeline to keep me structured. What about you? What would you do? Publishing order. Really? Why? Because I want to recreate the impact of the books as they came out. But the writing order is the publication order, right? 
I don't know when she, I don't know. She, I, I thought she would have written The Forbidden Rose first and thus it got published first before Spymaster's Lady. Oh, is that what you were saying? What? Hang on. Which book was published first? Her Ladyship's Companion, 1983. Spymaster's oh, Lady, 2008. My Lord and Spymaster, 2008. The Forbidden Rose, 2010. The Black Hawk, 2011. Rogue Spy, 2014. Oh, shit. And now um, Beauty Like the Night. Yeah. So what's that, 2017 or 2017? Was it published this year or last year? Last year. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, cool. Theoretically, she would have edited the final draft in the publication order. I have an interest in seeing how the author's skill and style changes over time. Mm. And if you read it in a different order than the publication date, I feel a bit messed up. (laughs) Like if I do. Yeah, that's a fair call. So Selena sent us an excerpt and it kind of makes me wonder if she spends a lot of time watching the conversations that you and I have had. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm actually not going Whatever to... Whatever could you mean by that, <laughs> you idiot? I am going to let Selena just kind of go with her excerpt and then we'll, we'll chat about it afterwards. This is not to be born, father shouted. You indulge her in everything, Rathborn, and you know this is caprice. Here is my son, willing, nay, eager to wed. He's heartbroken, mother cried. Only look at the poor boy. Lyle looked the way he always did when his parents were in one of their frenzies, but they'd always put their own interpretations on whatever he said and did. Why stop now? He'd written to his parents the letter Olivia had dictated, minus her capital letters and underlining and subduing the drama. She'd written to her parents. Mother and father had arrived a short time ago, only a little behind Lord and Lady Rathbourne. All four of them were equally eager, for different reasons, to see the marriage go ahead. Then Olivia told them she'd changed her mind. The so-called chaperons were at Glaxton Castle. One couldn't count on them not to give the game away. They meant well, but they could be unpredictable when in their cups. Even Lyle, perfectly sober, was hoping he wouldn't say the wrong thing. Acting wasn't his forte. It's all right, mother, he said. I'm disappointed, yes, but I shall have to bear it. I can't make Olivia wed, Lord Rathbone said. But she said she loves him, mother cried. He loves her. They said they would be married. He wrote it in a letter. I told everybody. Olivia changed her mind, said Lady Rathbone. Olivia always changes her mind. But why, mother cried, why, Olivia? If you must know. And and truly, I didn't wish to say I shouldn't wish to hurt your feelings for the world, Olivia said. But the fact is, I didn't realise he was penniless. It's simply out of the question. Lord and Lady Rathbourne looked at each other. Mother and father didn't notice. They noticed nothing but themselves. At the moment, all they understood was that one of the richest girls in England was jilting their son. But he'll inherit, father said. He's my eldest son and heir. He'll have everything. But that will not be for a very long time, God willing, Olivia said. Of course I should wish you a long and healthy, happy life. You said you cared for him, Olivia, Mother said reproachfully. Before you came here, you did give us to understand that you would welcome his suit. As much as his parents infuriated him, it was growing more and more difficult to keep a straight face. Lyle could practically see the line Olivia had thrown and the way she drew it in, little by little. That was before I fully realised his unfortunate situation, she said. If I married him, I should be a laughingstock, and he should sink in public esteem. People would say I was so desperate for a husband that I married a fortune hunter. A fortune hunter? Mother screamed. 
That isn't what I say, Olivia said. I know Lyle cares nothing about such things. I know he would take me in my shift. Her blue glaze slid his way briefly. But you know how utterly vile people can be. I could not bear it for my own sake or for Lyle's to have his good name sullied by ill-thinking persons. It grieves me. I thought we should suit so well, but I fear it is never to be. She turned to Lyle, her blue eyes shimmering with unshed tears. She could shed or unshed them at will, he knew. Lyle, I fear our love is doomed. It's most unfortunate, he said. I had the ring and everything, too. This is absurd, father said. Of course he isn't penniless. He has nothing of his own, Olivia said. Nothing belonging to him, and only him. He has no reliable source of income. He is merely an allowance. A generous one, too, said father, which I was meaning to increase on account of the fine work he's done here. An allowance you may give or withhold at your pleasure, she said. It isn't his. It must have sunk in, finally, because father stopped striding about the room and looked thoughtful. Is that the only hindrance, he said? Money? Money, Olivia said. But no, not merely money. A lump sum lacks substance. What we want mm, is property. No one could call him a fortune hunter if he were a man of property. She looked about her, at the walls of the vast hall, now boasting hangings and paintings. This property, for instance. Yes, she said thoughtfully. Now I think of it, this would do very well. Make Gorwood over to him entirely, and I shall marry him as soon as you please. Kaz, who's that book by? <laughs> well, Kaz, she's checking her notes. <laughs> she's not in here! <laughs> oh, did you... <laughs> Do you know what's so funny? Because she captured the voice of Loretta Chase <laughs> so fucking well, and yet you still so beautifully. She, um, that was last it was like an audio book by Loretta Chase, and it was it was like an audio book. It really was. That was killer. I, I can't do voice. Like uh, no, I can't I do. I admire people who can do voices. Yeah, same. Well, like just actually invest in that like character and go for it. Like, and that she takes didn't gust. have just like two people. There she were like, like a few six. people in there. It's amazing. <laughs> so great. Yeah. Two sets of parents and the couple themselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was great. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I'm going to do a producer move at you one moment. Can you scoot your chair to the left? Pick one of us to talk to. Don't try and talk to both of us. I feel very us. included, though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> That's I what I mean. Like, I'm, I'm quite happy for you to just look at Gabby. Um, so it's my turn. Yes. I don't know if I should do my reading. I or should. should I do mine? Okay. So this is from Princess Gambit, which is part of the Captive Prince trilogy by C.S. Picat. And there are no there are no words to explain how I feel about it. So I'm just going to go. I'm just going to go straight into it. This is new, said Laurent. There's something I want, said Damon. Something you want. The same words, precisely enunciated. He had known it wasn't going to be easy. Even with someone else, not this cold, unpleasant prince, it would not be easy. You get something in return, said Damon. He set his jaw as Laurent slowly paced around him, as though simply interested in viewing him from all angles. Laurent stepped mincingly over the chain that lay slack on the ground, completing his tour. Are you misguided enough to try to bargain with me? What could you possibly offer that I would want? Obedience, said Damon. He felt Laurent react to that idea. Subtly but unmistakably, the interest was there. 
Damon tried not to think too much about what he was offering, what it would mean to keep this promise. He would face that future when he came to it. You want me to submit. I'll do it. You want me to publicly earn the punishment that your uncle won't let you meet out? Whatever performance you want from me, you'll have it. I will throw myself on the sword in exchange for one thing. Let me guess. You want me to take off your chains or reduce your guard or put you in a room where the doors and windows are unbarred. Don't waste your breath. Damon forced the anger down. It was more important to be clear. I don't think the slaves in your uncle's care are well treated. Do something about it and the bargain is made. The slaves, Laurent said after a slight pause, and then with renewed drawling, scorn. Am I supposed to believe you care about their welfare? How exactly would they be treated better in a kilos? It is your barbaric society that forced them into slavery, not mine. I would not have thought it possible to train the will out of a man, but you have managed it. Congratulations, your show of compassion rings false. Damon said, one of the handlers took a heated iron from the fire to test whether the slave would obey an order to stay silent while he used it. I don't know if that is usual practice in this place, but good men don't torture slaves in Achilles. Slaves are trained to obey in all things, but their submission is a pact. They give up free will in exchange for perfect treatment. To abuse someone who cannot resist, isn't that monstrous? Damon said, please, they're not like me, they're not soldiers, they haven't killed anyone, they're innocent, they will serve you willingly and so will I if you do something to help them. There was a long silence. Laurent's expression had changed. Finally, Laurent said, you overestimate my influence over my uncle. That extract actually reminded me of all the things that I, A, loved but B, admired about how C.S. Bacat wrote that series. Yeah, because it's a series that deals with slavery. Like, you have a... Is that, is that kind of what you, what you yeah, mean? Yeah, but it's also... It, it's like... It complicates things that you kind of assume wouldn't be that complicated. Mm. Like, oh, you know, it's slavery. Of course I'm against slavery. But the way that she's constructed different kinds of slavery forces you to think about what it is you find repulsive in aspects of both societies. I think that's why a lot of the criticisms of this series was so reductive in the sense they said, oh, it's a book that glorifies slavery, but it's not a book that glorifies slavery at all. It is a book that questions and that critiques and that plays with and that looks at this really, really terrible, terrible thing. And it deals with so many heavy issues, but at the core of it is this power struggle between two men who are destined to be together. They are destined to meet, destined to interact, destined to have this relationship, and it is... It's so <laughs> I love this book. I love this series so much. I love it. This is why you can't bear to meet C.S. Bacat, isn't it? I've met her twice. Each time I've made a bumbling fool out of myself. Cat and I are destined to never hang out or be friends. And that's okay. I, it oh, is, but it's fine. Okay. Because sometimes you idolize someone too much and it's like, you yeah, can't, no, I totally you can't get be that. pals with them. I definitely get that. That's hero worship. Mm-hmm. I have authors like that too. Who? Joanna yeah, who Bond. are yours? Melina Marquetta. Oh. Honestly, I don't think I've had a rational conversation with her. Oh, yeah. Ever. You've mentioned. And yeah. I remember when I met Eloisa James for the first time, mm. I was like having an out of body experience, like, 
what are you doing? You're coming across as really weird and really like super keen. Yeah, <laughs> stop, like, stop. How do you be chill when you're telling someone that their book stabbed you in the chest? Like that they did that. How do you, how do you, you can't be cool about that. It's mm. impossible. It's absolute. And CS Cat just all of, all her writing does that to me. So our next reading is from Miranda Silva. And she is reading from a Karen McKenna book called Willing Victim. Are you good about knowing? You know, if a woman's about to freak out, he nodded. I think fighting's taught me how to read people pretty good. You should take up poker. Laurel drained her glass and set it aside. Do you have some kind of waiver I should sign, Mr. Preparedness? Now, nah, let's start. If I do something that makes you want to sue me, I'll probably deserve it. Laurel smiled at him, feeling as if she'd uncovered a complex new dimension of a man who'd seemed so simple at first glance. He really stuck his neck out for this, putting his faith in his partners as much as they did him, maybe more. You're really quite trusting, Laurel offered, and you're really quite attractive when you bust my balls, subshop girl. Why don't we get down to business and see how this goes? The chatting and alcohol had eased the tension in Laurel's body, but it flooded back with a vengeance as Flynn sat beside her. His weight shifted the couch cushions, reminding her just how big he was. She cleared her throat. <clears throat> Can we keep it pretty vanilla to start? And I could tell you when I might want you to get meaner. He nodded. Whatever you need. Okay, good. She studied his eyes, different than she remembered. Blue with a dark outer ring and a burst of amber around the pupil. She realized she probably looked silly. Her own eyes crossed from staring at him this close up. Then he kissed her and she couldn't give a good goddamn about anything except his mouth. Training wheels or not, Flynn only gave her a couple soft kisses before his tongue slid between her lips, hot and slick and aggressive. She sucked a breath through her nose, focusing on her body's thrill and filtering out the fear. His palms felt broad and warm as they grazed her neck, a little taste of the promised roughness in the way his fingers tangled in her hair, freeing half of it from the elastic. She stroked his shoulders and chest, taking in those firm contours as his tongue delved deeper. He pulled away to say, get on my lap. A shiver trickled through her at that first order. She toyed with saying, yes, sir, but wasn't ready to dive into the submissive role quite so soon. She tossed a leg over and straddled him. Flynn's eyes and hands roamed her sides, her arms, her small breasts. She touched his face and hair and ears, and he grabbed one of her hands and put it to his mouth, sliding two fingers between his lips. He sucked hard, making her fingertips prickle and her eyes widen. She felt his tongue push between the digits, then the drag of his teeth down her skin. He made a throaty noise that raised the hairs along her arms, and he pulled her fingers out. Take your top off, he said. Her body warmed at being commanded by this man. She'd done little snatches of role-playing with lovers, but always felt cheesy and awkward. Not with Flynn. She knew he wasn't play-acting. She peeled her shirt up and tossed it over the arm of the couch. Nice, he whispered, eyes darting over her skin. His rough palms swept up her stomach and ribs, cupped her breasts. Didn't anybody tell you it's July? He meant her pale skin. I'm not really a beach person. She glanced down at her freckled arms and the white skin of her trunk that never saw the sun. I like it, he said, still staring. You must be Irish. <laughs> I'm a mutt, and don't forget the red hair is not really mine. He ignored her attempt at self-deprecation. Reaching around, he got her bra clasp open. Another husky, appreciative noise escaped him as the garment dropped. His touch started light, 
the graze of his fingers stiffening her nipples. He cupped her breasts, squeezing and kneading softly, then a bit rougher. Laurel got her first taste of physical dominance. When his palms slid to her lower back, jerking her closer, higher, she braced a hand on the couch. His lips claimed one breast as he palmed the other, and her free hand went instinctively to the back of his head, nails raking his scalp, hard suction and a glancing of teeth. God! It came out as barely more than a grunt. He freed his mouth. Say my name. Flynn! A smug noise warmed her wet skin. Keep saying it. Gets me so fucking hard. Fever burned in her neck and cheeks as she thought of arousing him, and she shifted her hips, wanting to feel the evidence. Pressing their centers close, she ground against the stiff ridge hiding behind his fly. Flynn! Yeah. His mouth moved to her other breast, even rougher than with the first. His thick thighs fidgeted between hers, his swelling cock craving more space or more friction as the tension mounted. You feel big, Laura whispered. He pulled his head away. You want to see me? She nodded. Push that table back and get on your knees. She got off his lap, slid the coffee table away, and knelt between his feet. Her heart raced, 100% excitement, zero fear. Flynn scooted forward so his thighs flanked her ribs. He tugged off his shirt, offering the spectacle of all that powerful muscle, the smell of his skin. Laurel didn't wait for an order. She reached for his belt, getting the buckle open and letting the worn, heavy leather fall aside. She freed the button and lowered his zipper, then spread his jeans open, revealing a strip of black cotton. She caught the first hint of his scent, one that made her mouth prickle in anticipation. He eased his jeans down a couple more inches and adjusted his cock, centering the impressive bulge in his open fly. She glanced up to meet his eyes, wanting an order this time. Touch it. Touch it! <laughs> so glad someone sent in a bit of good smut. I couldn't stay in my seat. <laughs> There's a bit of activity, movement. And the email that accompanied this audio said that uh, Miranda actually picked up this book on Rudy's recommendation. The request for recommendations that Miranda had was, is there a market or is there an interest in within the romance readership? for humiliation kink and non-con and like all these kind of things and the responses that she got like for the most part on twitter was like go to facebook because the twitter crowd is not into this what seriously is that what she got i mean i didn't really look at the thread no that that was the thread yeah that was the thread and do you know what she they were right like the twitter crowd no one had recommendations for her no one had books And I was like, well, the only one I can think of that hits all of this, except that it is explicitly consensual. So, like, they dabble in all of these things, but really, like, solid on the consent. Willing Victim is probably the best one, and it's a duology. And I talked about it with you and Dr. Lauren Rosewarn as well. This is the same book. And, in fact, that is the scene that I was referencing. It's the one where, because she says can we do like the training wheels version because Lauren, the heroine of this book, her entire experience has been vanilla. So for Lauren, this is like all new and for her hero, like he's got quite an extensive experience playing in this kind of consensual non-consent. And he's always really clear with his, like with his partners that this is what I'm into. And if you're not like, that's cool. Like we just call it quits. And yeah, so that's like the first scene that they do together. Pretty sexy. I'm going to read it. 
I, yeah. <laughs> so just just be aware and because like it is a duology so willing victim i thought that it stood alone it does actually have brutal game as like the follow-up and it's the same couple and it's a continuation of their story like i kind of am in two minds about whether you need both books but apparently brutal game came about because other readers wanted a more solid resolution so again reader driven in terms of like I kind of was okay with their happily for now but other people needed a bit more and and so yeah Cara McKenna went with it but one thing is that Miranda I did say to her because she she tweeted me to let me know that she enjoyed the book and I was like oh I definitely have other recommendations for you and I haven't done it yet, but like, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> that is my point. So Miranda, if you're listening, I will actually get around to it eventually soon-ish. Hopefully before the Hopefully the before this actually goes out. Who knows? Yeah. I think it's a good time to go into the next. So this next one is my friend Teresa reading Fit by Rebecca Weatherspoon. And the reason that she chose it is because in the last few months there's been a lot of discussions about like body image representations of fat bodies in romance and we just think that fit by rebecca weatherspoon is one of the most beautiful like and and fun reps for fat bodies i mean because the the name is kind of misleading and maybe this and definitely this scene is a bit misleading as well but it's an amazing novella and it's well worth checking out. And Rebecca Weatherspoon has like the most beautiful humour when she writes. So this is Teresa with Rebecca Weatherspoon's Fit. Day one. Violet nearly wheezed as she dropped her weights to the ground. She collapsed on all fours, a few drops of sweat beating her to the hard rubber surface. She stretched her hands out, shoulder-width apart. Her knees ached as she raised herself up in a modified push-up. Was it possible to die from a push-up? She didn't know, but part of her wanted it to be true. Sweat ran down her face between her breasts, and she wanted to die. Actually, she wanted to kill her friend, Faye. And the people at SharePon.com. Faye had it coming for suggesting they take this all-ladies pump fit class together, and SharePond.com deserved a strong-worded letter for offering the class to Faye for free if she brought a friend along to join in the pain. Sure, in reality it was Violet's own fault. She'd spent half their last season on BBQ cook-off, complaining about how much weight she needed to lose while simultaneously shoving pound after pound of pulled pork into her pie hole. (laughs) Faye was a good friend, and listened to Violet bitching about the long hours they worked and the high-calorie foods they were forced to eat on set. Even though Faye seemed to manage the hours and the menus just fine, she listened when Violet confessed that she reached her breaking point. Her fat jeans barely buttoned over her stomach, the night of the rap party. It was time to get her body in order. She'd heard it one hundred and a million times. 
It takes 21 days to create a new habit. And Violet had exactly 23 days before pre-production started up on their next show for Park Palace Productions. She loved her job. As an associate producer, her company's primary focus was cooking and baking competition shows for the Food Channel. She worked hard and partied even harder. But enough was enough. She had 23 days to get on a healthy routine so she could go into the next show with a new diet, a new sleep schedule, and hopefully a smaller waistline. She envisioned herself taking on this challenge head on. She'd always been overweight, a chubby kid, turned fat teen, turned fat adult, and she'd always been somewhat in shape. Pump fit sounded tough. Still, if she put her mind to it, she could make it through the class. Or so she thought. One more minute! Keep going, ladies! The instructor shouted. Her name was Margaret, and even though she was the same height as Violet, she was about ten sizes smaller and carried about 75 more pounds of muscle, most of it in the area around the neck and shoulders. Instructor Margaret was from Australia, with an accent so thick her every command would have been hilarious if Violet could find the slightest bit of humour in the situation. Margaret was also a professional pump-fit competitor. As soon as she offered that bit of information at the start of class, Violet should have run back to her car. Up, Margaret shouted. I want 20 burpees, go! Violet struggled to her feet, then dropped back down, extending her legs behind her butt before bringing up her knees back up to her chest, then springing back up to her feet. One. Down again. She could barely breathe. Her lungs burned and that acidic taste, a mixture of burning fat blood and embarrassment filled her mouth. Beside her, Faye with her flat stomach and tight butt completed burpee three and four. Faye ate her pork too. It wasn't fair. Come on, Violet, keep going. We don't move on until we all finish. Right. Great. No pressure there. Violet dropped to the floor one more time and then again as Margaret kept screaming. The buzzer at the front of the room sounded signalling the end of the timed rotation. Violet had completed six burpees. She'd attempted eight. Margaret frowned at her briefly, but let it go. 200 metre run! Claire knows the way! Demon instructor nodded to a slim redhead, who nodded back, then bolted for the open gym door. Come on, Faye said, patting Violet's sweaty arm. You're doing great. Let's go. There are so many things in that that I want to talk about. Yeah, the reference to the Australian accent, like it's lost on someone who. Actually, I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about how weird it is to read a book that was written with a certain accent in mind, obviously, because an author has an accent, and then to just like completely bastardize it and be like, "Yeah, screw it, we're going to speak Australian." (laughs) Um, It's good. What I love about that scene because that's the very first scene of fit and it's where you meet violet and i mean she's at a bit of a low point in her life but if you've ever gone to a session at the gym and have realized like two minutes in that this is the (laughs) wrong class for you like there's no escape. You're trapped for oh, a fucking hour. I go to the toilet hour. and then I, I like I got to pee, <laughs> and then I like ten minutes and I drink water and I come back and then when I feel like I'm dying, I'm like got to pee again. Sorry, I've had kids. And then if you really can't hack it, just don't come back. 
Can I say what I really like about this book, and especially after the discussions about that book that have Mm. been going on lately, is that the discussions about weight loss with this book, it's not fraught. It's not like life or death. It's just that very, very regular feeling. So even though you're reading a book that is focused on this girl who's trying to lose some weight, like it's not even, that's not just the story. Yeah, like it's it's literally like she you get a very strong sense that for Violet, if she doesn't lose weight, it will not be the end of the world. And it's more about the fact that she doesn't sleep properly and she doesn't eat properly. And she's just like, she's just not in, yeah, like you said, she's not in a good space, but it's not life or death. And the thing that Rebecca Weatherspoon, she's always stunned me because she's the first romance author who I read a book of where I was like, oh my God, that character, I totally get her. She's from a cultural background like me and it's not wrong. (laughs) Yeah. That's relatable. (laughs) And I feel like that's what Rebecca does really, really well is she writes these characters that are just very real. I love her. She's on my list of authors to try. I still haven't picked up. Have you not? No. I think that you would enjoy the, the one that's about a sugar daddy. I think that you would actually be into that. Are you, Kat, are you going to read? It's the Duchess Wall. Yes, I've already read. You've got my audio. Not here, but all right. (laughs) Are we going to react to it? (laughs) Oh, my God, that was amazing. Oh, my God, Kat. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, as I was reading this extract, I thought, why did I choose one set in bloody England? Did you do an English accent? The accent of which I cannot actually replicate. (laughs) Like, why did I just pick a Filipino author whose accent I can do because you can't do well. Filipino accents when you're like when you're talking to I us. I actually can. Go do I it. You insist bit. that you don't. All well, right, no, no, but I could do, do it, it like as a no. voice actor. Go do be oh, a no. voice actor. Go no, because I already go do it. Recorded one. No, you have to do it. No, you just no, said you no, could. No, She's sorry. a fucking liar. Okay, well, can you introduce this? Okay, so my reading is an extract from *The Duchess War* by Courtney Milan. He didn't see how any man could call this woman timid. She positively crackled with defiance. He let go of her arm before the fury in her could travel up his hand and consume him. He had enough anger of his own. Never mind me, she said. Apparently, I'm not capable of helping myself. He almost jumped. He wasn't sure how he'd expected her voice to sound. Sharp and severe like her appearance suggested. Perhaps he'd imagined her talking in a high squeak, as if she were the rodent she had been labelled. But her voice was low, warm and deeply sensual. It was the kind of voice that made him suddenly aware that she was on her knees before him, her head almost level with his crotch. Save that for later, too. I'm a rodent. All rodents squeal when poked. She punched the sofa once again. She was going to bruise her knuckles if she kept that up. Are you planning to poke me, too? No. Stray thoughts didn't count, thank God. If they did... All men would burn in hell forever. Do you always skulk behind curtains, hoping to overhear intimate conversations? Robert felt the tips of his ears burn. Do you always leap behind sofas when you hear your fiancé coming? Yes, she said defiantly. Didn't you hear? I'm like a book that has been mislaid. One day, one of his servants will find me covered in dust in the middle of spring cleaning. Ah, the butler will say, that's where Miss Wilhelmina has ended up. I had forgotten all about her. Wilhelmina Pursling? What a dreadful appellation. She took a deep breath. 
please don't tell anyone. Not about any of this. She shut her eyes and pressed her fingers to her eyes. Please just go away, whoever you are. He brushed the curtains to one side and made his way around the sofa. From a few feet away, he couldn't even see her. He could only imagine her curled on the floor, furious to the point of tears. Minnie, he said. It wasn't polite to call her by so intimate a name, and yet he wanted to hear it on his tongue. She didn't respond. I'll give you twenty minutes, he said. If I don't see you downstairs by then, I'll come up for you. For a few moments there was no answer. Then. The beautiful thing about marriage is the right it gives me to monogamy. One man intent on dictating my whereabouts is enough, wouldn't you think? He stared at the sofa in confusion before he realised that she thought he'd been threatening to drag her out. Robert was good at many things. Communicating with women was not one of them. V, V, Pride and Prejudice. Like, oh, she's tolerable but not handsome enough to tempt me. Except she's handsome enough to tempt him. Yes, exactly. I, I think I enjoyed him actually the most because he's just kind of like, who am I talking to? Like, what, what is happening in this conversation? Like, it's not normal because he's, he's kind of haughty and, you know, like he kind of thinks he's got the upper hand because he overheard this conversation where she's put down by her fiancé. So I think he was prepared to feel sorry for her and kind of patronise her. And she's like, whatever. But I, I know what he's know like. I don't know he would have been because, like, He's just really nice. Like he was he was getting ready to like make her feel okay about the fact that she's getting married to a dickhead. And like he just is nice. Is it patronized? I would say patronized, but <laughs> actually it is patronized. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Okay. I just didn't okay. want to be rude. I know, I know, I know, I know. That's I why appreciate my non-rude friends. I really do. Tony Milan is an amazing author. And The Duchess of is a good book. I, I, I have read it. I've forgotten all about it, though. But it's not a sign that I... But also, it's part of, like, a big series. Isn't and it? I think I read all the books one What's after the, the other. It's the, it's the Brothers Sinister. Yes, and it is so it's it starts with The Governess Affair, which is a novella. And then it goes the Duchess War, and then the heiress effect. Yes, I read conspiracy. these back to back, so I actually don't have much of a recollection. <laughs> like I can't. It's we like, actually, it's you like don't, that, it's we like, both don't deserve to be. Here. It's like that. Like to me, a lot of it is a blur. Like I know I enjoyed it. I know I loved some of the books more than others. <laughs> and I just usually I go to Goodreads and go, which one did I give a five star to? That's obviously the one that I loved the, the most. But of all the books, the Suffragette scandal is the one that I remember most just because it was the one with the most unusual plot slash heroine. See, and because that's the one that I still refuse to read and I felt kind of bad about why, but also. Why do you refuse to read it? Because I think that Free, when when I first, like when, when you're first introduced to Free, I thought that she was a lesbian yes. and it really, like it disrupted my headcanon to have her be in a heterosexual relationship. I, I think I did read the book and I think that's why it didn't work for me because I was convinced just like you that she was gay. I read that book first. So yeah, I had uh, no preconceived notions of 
what I found really interesting was the same line that Courtney Milan says is the reason she felt like she had to read, uh, she had to write Free's book is the same line that made me think that Free is a lesbian. Her brother says something to her about like, he's worried that the world is going to break her. And she's like, no, I'm going to break the world. And like, that's the point where I was like, she, yeah, yeah, like she's going to be, wasn't she? Yeah. She's going to push this subversion to like a whole new level. Because at that point, she's quite young. Like, she's... 16 or something. Something like that. Mm. And I'm like, oh, this is a girl who knows that she is different on a fundamental level. It felt bigger than her politics, you know? Mm. Like, her politics were was one thing. But, yeah. It was like that... Yeah, it's like there's something at the root of her politics. There is something that is driving her to want to break the world. Because that is part of the reason why a lot of people turn to radical politics and to activism. It's because they find that they're different and that there's something in them that doesn't fit the norm. So when you see it in a romance character, you're like, yeah, these are the signs. I'm seeing it. I'm recognising it. Let's go. And then, sadly, it falls flat. And did I mean, you read like, this, that book? Yeah, I did. I'm did pretty you sure I enjoy did. it. Listen, like I enjoyed it in the way that I'd enjoy any well-written romance, but I wasn't again convinced. It wasn't a book that stayed with me. Like for so many people, it is their favorite in that series. I know that Jodie has talked about it being her favorite, and Kat, you've said the same. I don't. I, just, I don't like, know so that it's my favorite. People. It's the one I remember the most because it's mm. the one I read first. Um, but I do know that there were uh, there was at least one other book in that series that I thought was really, really good. Presumably the one you just read from. <laughs> what an epic show. Rudy, who is also our audio producer, did an amazing job with this episode. We couldn't have pulled this off without her, so massive thanks to Rudy. Also, a super massive big thank you to you for sharing some of your loves this Valentine's Day. And finally, thank you to all the authors who were gracious enough to let us use their extracts. You can find the show notes for episode 52 at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. And if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. This helps other listeners like you find the show. In the meantime, please visit us at bookthingo.com.au and have a fabulous fortnight of reading. <laughs> <laughs>